Well, how you doing? How you been? Good morning, church, family. So good to be back. So good to see you. And thank you so much for joining us at BT Church. And so whether if you're online or offline, BT is one church in multiple locations where mi casa su casa. This is home. Amen? Amen. We truly believe here at BT that you can call this place home. And we absolutely also believe that God is doing some amazing big things here in this place. And so, by the way, my name is Juan, and I've had the honor and privilege of being the campus pastor for our Sherryland location for the last five and a half years. And uh, God is doing some amazing things. God is absolutely doing some amazing things. And as many of you know, uh, my family and I, uh, we are packed and ready to leave at the end of this month, and we're headed to Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and so that's Noah, Leanna, Ethan, Lily, and myself. And what really warm, warms my heart is that we get to go and do life, to experience life together as a family. And so with that said, this morning, I'd like to um, take some time to thank some special people. First off, I'd like to thank all the elders of the church here at BT uh, for the opportunity and the responsibility of uh, allowing me to shepherd the people at our Sherryland campus. And so, guys, I'm not going to lie. Day one, I had no idea what in the world I was doing, right? But praise God that, that he does and that he was leading the way. Um, and so five and a half years here um, at our Sherryland campus, and then two years here at the McAllen campus as the middle school youth pastor uh, for uh, some of the students here that I've seen that are probably like 20 times taller than I am uh, right now. Um, and secondly, I'd also like to thank all of our pastoral staff. I'd like to thank all of our team leads and every single person who makes up, who is part of an elite team here at uh, that serve at the, on our BT staff. They are elite, and uh, they make all of this happen on any given Sunday. And so to them, I want to wholeheartedly thank you for allowing me, giving me the opportunity to partner with you in the gospel. It has truly been a great run. And um, what's amazing is that we both got to see God do some amazing, amazing things. And so we know that for BT, the best is yet to come. As we continue to believe that God would continue to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think. And to him and to him alone be the glory. Amen? Amen. And so this morning, I have the honor and privilege of kicking off a brand new series in the book of Nehemiah. And so once again, we're kicking it old school. We're kicking it all the way back into the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bible smart device, follow me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be reading through the entirety of the chapter. And just for reference, Nehemiah is nicely tucked between Ezra and Esther. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and this is the word of God. The word of Nehemiah, son of Hakilah, 
During the months of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah and questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the providence who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and all-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open to your ears, be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we've committed against you, both I and my father's family have sinned. I've accepted, I've acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you have gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, and even though your exiles are banished to the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose my name, have my name dwell. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cup bearer. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, we praise you. And we thank you. How magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have filled the heavens with your majesty. And today I will speak of your splendor, your glorious majesty and of your wondrous works. All that we say and do today, I pray that it bring honor and glory to your name that we can make much of who Jesus is. And so I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that we may know the hope of your calling and what is the wealth of the glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe all according to the mighty working of your strength? For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. And so church, I am super confident that over the last seven weeks that across multiple locations, across all of our campuses, that we had an amazing, a great time in our sermon series, Next Is Now. I am equally confident that for the next seven weeks, as we hit up, as we hit up Nehemiah, that you all will equally be blessed. And so, speaking of Nehemiah, both Jewish and Christian tradition both agree, both recognize Ezra as the author. And further evidence points to the fact that at one time, both 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. But what we know for certain and what we can say with great confidence this morning is that the book of Nehemiah is Israel's recorded history, is the history of Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity all the way to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And so get this, for the next seven weeks, over the course of the next seven weeks, we are going to be talking about how faith can rise up in a person to spark transformation and renewal. We're talking about contagious faith, outrageous faith, faith, as we say today, faith that would make much of who Jesus is. And so when we talk about that, we're talking about faith that impacts our personal space, faith that impacts our public space, our friends, our family, our finances, our careers, our future, our dreams, our aspirations, the very fabric of our existence. And so church, where do we find Nehemiah? At the very beginning of the chapter, we find Nehemiah from the get-go, straight from the text, right off the bat, he is broken. And his people, his people are far from God. They are desperate and they're seeking God's blessing. His people are in great trouble and disgrace. And listen, to add injury to insult, Jerusalem, the place he and his people call home is in utter ruins. Think about this. How many people right now, today, do you know of whose lives are in utter ruins? How many people do you know today, right now, this morning, whose lives are in great trouble because they are far from Jesus? Church, this, the next seven weeks, we are talking about contagious faith, outrageous faith, obedient faith. Faith that impacts not only our personal space, but our public space. And so this faith, faith that would make much of who Jesus is. Faith that would make much of who Jesus is should spark transformation and renewal. And the following eight verses, starting with verse 3, all the way down to the end of the chapter, we see... Nehemiah's first response. And this is going to be key. This is going to be the theme for today. Nehemiah's first response. Now, keep that in mind because I'm going to switch gears for just a bit. But I need you to remember to keep in mind Nehemiah's first response. Now, I don't know about you, but my brain probably works a little bit different. But when I think of a first response, I automatically think of a first response responder. And so if we have any first responders in the house, I want to salute you for the job that you do day in and day out to serve our community. So thank you so much for serving. Absolutely. And so by definition, a first responder is a person with specialized training who is among the first to arrive and provide assistance at the scene of an emergency. In other words, they are highly trained to assess any situation to help save lives. Now, on the flip side, as a first responder in Christ, 
we too have a specialized training because of the relationship that we have with God through Christ. And this specialized training, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and because of the power of God's word, we too, we too can assess or rather discern any situation. And because of these two realities, because of these two realities of the Holy Spirit and God's word, we are able to respond. Our first response, much like Nehemiah, is that we should always, always respond with prayer first. That should be our first response. Now, church, if we are to look at the Big C Church, the Big C Church as a spiritual hospital, filled with people that are lost, imperfect, and wounded. Then in Christ, again, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit and by God's word to assess or discern any situation, get this, to help save lives, or rather, point them to the one who is able to save. Amen? Amen. So as a first responder in Christ, we are to inspire transformation and renewal. And if, if, just if, if I'm on the right track this morning, then our first response, prayer should always be the first response. And so if you're taking notes this morning, church, prayer is our first response because in prayer, we worship. We worship. Worship. Listen to what Nehemiah says back in verse 5. He says, I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. And so we need to acknowledge what is happening in the text. Nehemiah, even though he is broken, even though he is filled with tremendous, tremendous burden, he starts off his prayer, not with a request, but with worship. But didn't I just mention that Nehemiah was broken and filled with tremendous, tremendous burden? I'm not sure what you're going through this morning. I'm not sure what you're experiencing this morning. I'm not sure if you feel broken this morning. I'm not sure if you have or are dealing with tremendous, tremendous burden. But with that said, I truly believe that Nehemiah had an excuse, had a big excuse to start off his prayer with a big ask. He had an excuse to start off his prayer with a need, with a petition, with a desire, and simply just to say, I need something, God. And yet we see the complete opposite. We see Nehemiah respond with worship. And how often, church, how often should you be doing this? How often should I be doing this? How often should we be doing this? And the answer is all the time, all the time. We should respond to God, not with our circumstances, not with a request, but just exactly what Nehemiah did. He's broken. He's filled with burden upon burdens upon his people. His homeland is in ruins. And he begins worshiping 
the God of the universe. He says, not just the God of the heavens, but the the great and awe-inspiring God, a God of awesomeness, a God who is a promise maker and a God who is a promise keeper and who loves those who keeps his commands. When we pray to the Father, we should always be left in awe. There's some lessons that both you and I, this morning, we can absolutely learn from Nehemiah his circumstances, where he felt, where he was lost, incomplete, and yet he prays. He prays to the Father. And just listening and reading and studying his prayer leaves me in awe because I should, we should be responding to the God of the universe exactly how Nehemiah responds. A life of worship is knowing how great God is even when your life might not be so great right now. Let me read that again. A life of worship is knowing how great God is even when your life might not be so great right now. I'm not sure what circumstances you're facing right now. And saying that statement is easier said than done. But let me rest assure you, church, that nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the Bible does God ever say that life is ever going to be easy. And I might even be preaching to the choir right now. But when we sign up, when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean that our life is going to be perfect, but rather but rather that we can acknowledge God for who he is no matter what in the world is going on in our lives. Our worship should not de- be dependent on our circumstances, and this is exactly what we see from Nehemiah. Worship helps to connect us to the right person. Worship helps to connect us to the right perspective and worship helps us to surrender to God's awesomeness. There's no more or less. This is a fact. As we read through the text, as we see Nehemiah hard-pressed for himself and for his people, for the things for God's name, for his renown and his renown alone. Listen to what Psalms 8 verses 3 through 9 say. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, oh Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And as we pray... As we worship God through prayer, we must be reminded that no one supersedes him. Just think about that. As you sit wherever you're at and you spend time, quality time with God, and you pray to the Father in heaven, realize that nobody supersedes him. Nobody is above him. No one can do a perfect job such as him. No one can match him, and nobody certainly is on his level. He never calls in sick. He never takes a vacation and he never runs late. Think about that. Think about how amazing God is, how awe-inspiring God is towards us, how faithful he is towards us, even when we are unfaithful towards him. 
And as we see the world and culture change around us, drifting further and further from God, we have to be a people like Nehemiah who are broken and burdened for the people around us. We must rise up. Our faith must not only impact our personal space, but it must also impact our public space. We must have that contagious faith, that outrageous faith, obedient faith that sparks transformation and renewal. We need to start thinking about the people around us who are in dire need of a savior. This is the same faith that Nehemiah had right here in chapter one. And listen, as he continues to pray and worship, later on in the text, we see Nehemiah pray for restoration, for repentance. He is praying on behalf of people around him. We should be doing the same for our family members, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, people who are far from Christ, our nation, the world. We should be praying for people around us that God would give us an opportunity. Like we should be ready. You give me time, place, purpose, and a person, and I'll put it on my calendar, and I will be ready to share the gospel, ready to point somebody to the all-inspiring God. Prayer is our first response because there is a reward. So we've gone from worship. Now we understand that prayer is our first response because there is a reward. Now, there's nothing wrong with rewards. Let's just get that out of the way, okay? There's nothing absolutely wrong when we view God and we seek God and we ask God and we worship God and as we pray to God, that God would wholeheartedly reward us. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, we're not talking about Bentleys or private jets, right? And we're certainly not talking about the prosperity gospel either. But again, let me reiterate, there is absolutely nothing wrong with expecting God to reward us. Think about this. When we come to Christ, right? When we fully surrender our lives to Christ, we come to Christ uh, through Christ, he reconciles, right? The reward is he reconciles our relationship back with God. He fixes our relationship with God. That in itself is a reward. He restores us back to right standing with the Father. And when we come to Christ, the reward is this. Jesus deposits or imputes his righteousness into our accounts. And because of that, through Christ and because of Christ, we now have a place, a spot for eternity. What an eternal reward. And I can go on and on and on about rewards. And so there is absolutely nothing wrong when we expect God to reward us if we wholeheartedly seek him and seek his will. And in the text, notice how Nehemiah truly understands that the rewards of God are directly connected to the promises of God. And this is where we need to handle God's word correctly so that we can correctly experience the rewards of God. And we have to be careful here, right? We have to be careful here. You've heard this time and time again. We cannot live, love the gift more than the giver. 
We can't. Our love is to supersede, right? Supersede any gifts, and our love is wholeheartedly for the giver. We seek the giver because he is our great provider. Listen to what Hebrews 11:6 says. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's the formula, right? We are rewarded because we seek him and we should seek him wholeheartedly and we should seek him for his will and not our will. We should seek him for things that we need wholeheartedly and things that he would allow us to have. And so with that said, nothing in the text, right? Nothing in the text in Nehemiah and nothing in the text in Hebrews points to yachts, private jets, or Bentleys. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things. But when they replace God, then all of a sudden you have a God-sized problem. And you don't want to have a God-sized problem. We can never love the gift more than the giver. And so that prayer, we have to understand that prayer deepens our relationship with God. And it should consist of time. It should consist of time. I said this in the first service. I don't exactly remember. It's been a while, but I remember reading, and the author says this, that your kids, that kids, children, my kids will spill love, T-I-M-E. That's how my kids spell love. That if I say that I love them and don't spend time with them, then those are just words. But if I tell them that I love them and then I devote time to them, then I am not only just expressing my love for them, I am proving my love for them. And so our relationship with God needs to consist of T-I-M-E. If we say that we love God, then we need to show him by giving him our T-I-M-E. And it should also consist of communication and intimacy. Nehemiah understood this truth because he was rewarded with God's attention. Let us be careful that we don't pray for the wrong rewards. And lastly, prayer is our first response because we desire results. We desire results, right? Let's not hide behind the bush, beat around the bush about it. But when we pray, we're asking God for results. Case in point, as I mentioned earlier, as most of you know already, we're headed to, um, to Fort Worth. And so there's a lot of moving pieces since both Lily and I, we, we, we prayed about it. We saturated this decision in prayer. We talked to our kids. And then from there, we talked to leadership. And then from leadership, we talked to the staff. And from staff, we let our, our dream team people at our Sherryland campus know. And so there's been a lot of pieces, a lot of moving pieces that I don't have enough time to, to share this morning. But fast forward, last Monday, um, or last Friday, we, we closed on our house, right? Finally, somebody bought our house and all the paperwork and everybody who has to touch the, the files of the selling of our house, we finally sell it. Then on Sunday night, Lily and I, we got some, some houses that, that we have saved on Zillow and we're like, man, if this house um, makes it to next weekend, it, it might not be our house. 
we reach out to our realtor and we say, hey, listen, um, we want to put a bid on our house, right? So as we're doing that, that Sunday, that day before, which is Sunday morning, I preached the sermon at our Sharonland campus. And for probably the last six months, after I preach at our campus, time of response, you're going to see me down there, you know, asking people to pray for me. We have an amazing, an amazing dream team at our Sharonland campus. And we have our, our directors of altar ministry, Marisol and Jimmy Bruce. Jimmy is my boy. So when I need to respond, I'm hitting him up, right? And I said, Jimmy, we just closed in our house, right, on, on Friday. I said, now the hard work begins because now we need, we need a house up in Fort Worth. And the market is insane. It's insane here. It's insane over there. And you have to bid maybe 15, 20, 25, maybe even $30,000 over this price. So Lily and I, we had projections. I had a list. We had links. We were praying. I said, Jimmy, we need a house, man. Can you just pray? I just want to come to the Lord and thank him wholeheartedly. I want to come with a heart of thanksgiving and thank the Lord that he did the impossible. He sold our house within a month. Now we need him to continue to do the impossible because we need a house because we are set off to leave to Fort Worth at the end of this month. I know, Jimmy, a lot of moving pieces. I'm asking a lot, but can you just pray? He prays a blessing over me, and I kid you not, 24 hours later, we, we do a, a virtual walkthrough of the house that we want. There's no bids for that house. Amazingly, there's no bids for that house. It's in a great area, great school district. It's a great house. We told the realtor, let's pull the trigger. And in my head, I'm willing, okay, we're projected 15, 20 over, right? She says, hey, let's, let's put the bid in at list price. I'm like, what? I'm already saving money. Let's go. She says, okay, wait. Let's be a little bit aggressive. She says, let's bid just 5000 over. I'm, I'm like, I'm still saving money with you, girl. Let's go. Let's do this. So we put in the bid. I come back to church. We're in sermon prep. We're prepping for this sermon. And then my wife calls me mid-sermon prep, and she says, babe, we got the house. I'm like, what in the world? Results, Right? Here's what I don't want you to read between the lines, that God will answer your prayer within 24 hours. Listen, church, we had been saturating, saturating. We've been asking family and friends and leadership to be praying for us that God would orchestrate every single step, even from the realtor who helped us sell our house here right down the street. And so when we pray, I mean, we can't lie about it. We want to see results. And the reason why we want to see results is because we pray to an able God. We pray to a God who is able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or even think. And so this blows my mind. We close on our house on the 27th. We're loading everything up in our moving truck on the 28th. And we're on the road on the 29th. Exactly. <laughs> exactly what we had asked God to do in our lives. 
results. So far, again, we've gone from worship, rewards, and now to results. Remember what we find Nehemiah in verse four. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. So much, listen, we can spend hours and hours cutting up the text this morning, but even just that text, the heart, the consistency, the brokenness, the burden that we see in Nehemiah's life, he's broken, he's weeping, he's, he's fasting, he's praying for his people and the people around him. He's praying for the brokenness around him and he wholeheartedly wants to make much of who God is. We have so much to learn. Listen, after today, we'll be done with chapter one and then we're off to, to the next chapter for the next seven weeks. But there is so much to continue to learn just simply from Nehemiah's first response. Should always, our first response should always start with prayer. We find him broken, distraught, discouraged, and hopeless for the situation he and his people are in. And we know that Nehemiah's desire, his pray, is to see results. We see him ask God, give your servant success today. He's asking for grace and for favor. How many of us, how many times have we prayed over and over at the beginning of the day, Lord, give me a great day. We're asking for success. We're asking for favor. We're asking for his grace. We're asking for his peace that every step that we take, that we would make much of who he is. And this is exactly what we see Nehemiah doing in the text. And we can only conclude that Nehemiah is able to pray this prayer because he believes that God is an active God. He is an ever-present God. He is a sovereign God, a God who can move people, places, and things for his honor and for his glory, for his renown and for his renown alone. There's no bragging rights for us, church. There's no way that I can say, oh man, we got the best realtor and we somehow made it happen. There's no bragging rights for me. There's no bra bragging rights for me for eternity. I couldn't even save myself. And so church, when we ask God for results and we have answered prayer, I believe, I believe this with all my heart, that as he answers prayer, that should instill in us in awe in, in, in who God is. Because then in turn, we turn around and we give him the glory and the glory alone. When God answers our prayers, when I see God moving people, places and things in real time, in real life right now, he ceases to amaze me. And I thought, October of 1993, when he saved me, I thought that that was just the amazing thing that God could ever do. And every time he ceases to amaze me. He continues to leave me in awe. He should continue to leave us day in and day out. You woke up this morning alive. You should be in awe of that. You have a roof over your head. You should be in awe of that. You have money in the bank right now. You should also be in awe of that. And if you're in Christ this morning, you should 
wholeheartedly for eternity be in awe of the goodness and the greatness of who God is, and that should leave you in awe. It doesn't mean that circumstances are perfect right now because we said that our circumstances shouldn't be dependent, our worship shouldn't be dependent on what is going on in our lives. Nobody's life is perfect. But what we do know is this, the one who is with us is absolutely 100% perfect. And he fights for us and he's with us and he never leaves us stranded. He never leaves us high and dry. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so at the very beginning of verse 11, listen to what Nehemiah says. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. I love to ask God to bow down his ear to listen to my petitions. It's not like he cannot hear my prayers because he can absolutely hear my prayers, even if I just think them. He knows them already. Even before I request them, he already knows ahead of time what I need. But I love to show him respect and renown. Oh, dear Lord, bow down your ear. Would you just allot time to listen to my requests? And this is what Nehemiah does. And he says wholeheartedly at the end of the day, all I want to do is that your name would be renowned, made famous, that we could make much of who you are. Church, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about contagious faith, outrageous faith, obedient faith that sparks us, that sparks transformation and renewal, not only in our personal space, but in our public space. Who can you think of today, this morning, today, this afternoon, who can you think of right now, one person who you know their life right now is in utter ruin, that one person right now whose life is in great danger because they are far from Jesus. How can God use you? Are you prepared right now as you leave this place, this place that we call church, and you know that this is just the building, both you and I in Christ, we are the church. They need to see us, the church, give him his honor and his glory. They need to see and have this contagious faith so that we can point them to the one as a first responder in Christ to point them to the one who is able to save. For the next steps that Nehemiah is about to encounter in the next chapters will need a God-sized response. Are the results you are looking for needing a God-sized response this morning? Are the results you're asking for, will they bring honor and glory to his name? And so the question this morning is, what are the next steps that both you and I, we need to take? How are we to respond to God's word? And I'm a firm believer that if we listen, if we hear God's word, there must, there needs to be a response. And thank God at BT, after we preach, there's always a response time for you to understand who you are in comparison to God and how much you need him and how dire you are in need of his goodness 
and his greatness and that he knows your burdens, he knows your brokenness, he knows your needs even before you request him and that because of Christ that we now have access to the Father where we can respond him, respond to him, not with a request, but with worship, wholehearted worship. And so this morning, if you're here this morning and you are far from Christ, you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, let me just tell you this. I made that decision back in October of 1993, and my life has never been the same again. But in 1993, I had to understand and recognize that I was a sinner, that I had broken God's commands that I was imperfect, that I had been born into sin, and that even if I thought at that time that maybe I probably only maybe broke one out of the 10, that in my mind that was a passing grade. That's a 90% out of 100, right? That's a passing grade, and yet with God, he desires 100%. Perfection, and both you and I, we could never, ever come to perfection And so in 1993, October of 1993, I understood that I was a sinner. And let me just say this. I was, Paul says that that he is the sinner of all sinners. I think that I could give him some competition on that. But I knew that I was a sinner and that I was in dire need of a savior. And this is what I understood from the evangelist that day who preached the gospel to me five days in a row. And the last day I understood that my sin, that we all sin, and that my sin has separated me from a relationship with God. And I understood that God so loved me, God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son. He sent the remedy of sin through Christ. And Jesus was born both fully God and fully man and walked this earth, was tempted, but did not sin. And he died a brutal death. The Bible tells us that he was beaten to a pulp, that he was unrecognizable, that he did not look human. And yet he went to the cross obediently and he died. He died a tremendous death. But the Bible also tells us that on the third day, he came back to life defeating death and sin forevermore. And I remember distinctly October of 1993, understanding this fact that if Jesus indeed defeated death and sin forevermore, that I, I wanted to be on team Jesus because if he can defeat death and sin, then that's the team I need to be on and that's the team that I want to be on. And so if you're here today, My friend, don't leave this place without making Jesus the Lord of your life. And it's simple. Romans 10, 9 says that if we simply just confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, the Lord Jesus, that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus has done all the hard lifting for you already. All you need to do is just receive his gift of salvation. He paid a heavy, heavy price. And so understanding that, you ask Jesus to become the Lord and Savior of your life. 
You ask him to transform you through his spirit and through his word. And just like that, today is your day of salvation. It's simple. Your eternity is set. Your life is forever transformed, not only for eternity, but for the here and for the now. So for those of us online and those of us here in person, I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. And if you're here and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've never asked Jesus to save you, don't leave this place. Don't leave this place. And if that's you, I would love for you to make, to say this prayer with me. The prayer doesn't save you. What the prayer does, it explains the decision that you have already made. You put one and two together. And so that's you. If you want Jesus today, say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. And I know that I am a sinner. And I'm in dire need of a savior. And today I confess with my mouth and believe with my heart that God, you raised Jesus from the dead. Today, right now, I plead with you, save me. And I allow you to sit on the throne of my heart as Lord and Savior. And Savior. Fill me with the Holy Spirit to teach me, to know you, to love you, to serve you, and to tell others about you. And the day that I die, I know that I will be with you forever. Thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen.